If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. This is part four of our 2021 summer in Psalms. This is the third year we've uh, been doing it. Uh, Last week, I said that next week we'd be back in Exodus. Um, We have one more psalm we want to share with you. And so that will be next week, will be our final summer in Psalms for 2021. And then the week after that, the last week of July, we'll jump back into Exodus. Now this is the plan, card subject to change, okay, God willing. We'll get through Exodus this fall, and then we'll begin the Gospel of Luke, hopefully around Christmas, and uh, start working our way through uh, that Gospel, okay? That, that's the plan as of right now. But for today... We're going to be in Psalm 45. We're going to read the whole psalm. I'll be in the New American Standard uh, version. It'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow with me as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloe and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You will, shake, you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. In C.S. Lewis's first book in the Chronicle of Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it takes nearly half the book before the audience is introduced to the most important character in the series, the great lion, Aslan. And when the reader does finally hear the name of Aslan, he's merely described. He's spoken about, rather than appearing and interacting with the characters. And as the main characters, who all happen to be siblings, that unwittingly, you know the story, even if you haven't read it, they unwittingly find themselves in the strange land of Narnia. They're in a precarious situation. 
And they feel frightened and worried about their new friend, Mr. Tumnus, who had been captured and turned into stone by the evil white witch. They're finally told that there is hope coming to the land in the form of Aslan. And the first mention of him, Mr. Weber says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps already landed. And when Mr. Beaver says the name Aslan, Lewis writes that something strange happened in the hearts of the siblings. None of them had ever heard that name before. But for some reason, something stirred or jumped inside of their hearts at the first mention of their name. Lewis says that the feeling that they got was like when you have a dream that's so beautiful and wonderful that you can't put it into words and you wish you could remember it all your life and you wish you could experience it again. And a few pages later, one of the siblings, Susan, asks, who is Aslan? And Mr. Beaver responds, Aslan, why, don't you know he's the king? He's the lord of the whole world. But not often here you understand. Never in my time, says Mr. Beaver, or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He, he's in Narnia at the moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. And Edmund, another one of the siblings, asks, she won't turn him into stone too, referencing the white witch. And the, Mr. Beaver says, Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say. Turn him into stone? If she could stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she could do and more than I expect of her. No, no, no. He'll put all to rights as it says in the old rhyme. And then he reads this song that everybody knows. He says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. And Mr. Beaver says, you'll understand when you see him. And Susan believes Aslan to be a man. And Mr. Beaver says, no, he's a lion. He's the great lion. Then in an exchange that you surely have heard, even if you've never read the books before, Susan asks if since he's a lion, if he's safe. Because the prospect of meeting a lion makes her nervous. And Mr. Beaver says that if anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking... They're either brave or just silly. Then he says, of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Then Peter says something that is very fascinating. He says, he's longing to meet Aslan, but he feels frightened. Mr. Beaver assures him that this is the right feeling to have. And I, I love this scene and those descriptions of Aslan. And many of you know that he's the Christ figure in this allegory of the Chronicles of Narnia. And those descriptions say a lot about maybe how we should see Jesus in some respects too. Because Jesus is simultaneously fearsome and good. He's majestic yet tender. He's a great lion, but also a gentle and lowly lamb. But when we hear his name, something should stir in our hearts. We shouldn't be able to dwell on his person and be stoic or unaffected. Nor should we look at him with passivity or describe him in docile or nonchalant ways because while he's good, he's not safe either. And the reason I bring this scene up from the Lion, Winter Robe is that it beautifully pictures 
eager anticipation of expecting Aslan's arrival. And while it mixes descriptions of him that seem almost contradictory, it anticipates his coming because he will make the forces of evil afraid while he also champions the lowly. And something very similar to this is happening in Psalm 45. This psalm, it anticipates the Messiah's arrival. And it describes some of what, we will, what he will be like. But it's from a position of not having met him. The psalmist doesn't know him. The psalmist is utterly looking forward to what the Messiah will be like. But he surely does not fully even understand what he's writing. For, for our author, whose identity is a mystery to us, we don't know who wrote this, the Messiah will be someone who is the most astounding king that will ever live. He will be what all kings should be, what every king, no matter how good, fails to be. And the psalm is unique in that it is the only psalm of its kind. This is a royal wedding psalm, and it's the only one. We have no other royal wedding psalm, nor any other royal wedding song like this in the Bible. Now, we don't know who this was. This was likely written for a king in its immediate context. So, in other words, we don't know, though, who it is that this earthly king was having a wedding. We don't know if it was a song that was perhaps used on multiple wedding occasions every time a king got Married, but we do know that it reaches further than the time of the author as a description for the Messiah to come. So while the human author surely did not know how far this psalm would reach in the future and may have had a human king in his context in mind, the Holy Spirit, who inspired him to write it, knew exactly who would fulfill the descriptors in this psalm. And there are multiple reasons to see this as pointing to the Messiah. For one, Consider that the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1.8, also inspired by the Holy Spirit, quotes this psalm and applies it to Jesus. Let me read you what he says. He says, speaking of Jesus, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is far more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now listen, he says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Is that not He's quoting Psalm 45. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness because of, beyond your companions. So clearly, this is referencing the Messiah because Hebrews tells us it is, right? But there's another reason. <coughs> Excuse me. Around 500 B.C., about 500 years before Jesus' incarnation, what we call the Old Testament was translated into Aramaic. Okay, And this is how it translates verse 2. It says, Thy beauty, O King Messiah, is greater than that of the children of humanity. So for hundreds of years before Christ's birth, 
this psalm was used as a description of what the Messiah would be like. Further, you just consider, you consider how this king is being addressed and described, and it seems it can only 100% be true of the Messiah. Especially you look at verse 6 again. The king is addressed as what? As God, isn't he? So he's simultaneously king and God, and in no other place in all of the Hebrew Bible is the king identified as God. So it wouldn't make sense for it to be purely ascribed to an earthly king. No, this psalm is anticipating the coming of the glorious Messiah who will take for himself a bride. And do you realize, do you realize that marriage occupies a highly significant place in the Bible? Do you realize that? The Bible begins with a wedding, doesn't it? God creates Adam and Eve, and they're joined together. They set the pattern for the future as God tells them that man shall what? Leave his parents and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and they will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his relationship with Israel as a marriage, doesn't he? This is especially clear in the book of Hosea, right? (laughs) Where God is saying that his relationship... With Israel, is like that of a marriage, and when they go after other gods, they're playing the harlot, is what he says, because they, they, they aren't only committing idolatry, they're committing spiritual adultery. It's very grievous to God that his wife should turn from him and be in a relationship with false gods, and he has Hosea live out this picture before Israel. And further... Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom repeatedly in the Gospels. And then, of course, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that the greatest reason for human marriage exists is that it pictures the marriage that Christ has with his church. Isn't that what it says? So our marriages are to do far more than we think, says Paul. They're to communicate something profound to us and to others, namely Jesus' relationship with the church. Christ is the groom, and the church is his bride, and he intends, says Paul, to present the bride spotless at the end of the age. Then, just as the Bible begins with a wedding, guess how it ends? It ends with a wedding and a great marriage banquet before the consummation of Christ as bridegroom with the church, his bride. So this psalm is saying a lot more than the psalmist realized, but the Holy Spirit knows exactly what is being pictured here. Now, I first want you to notice that the attention of this psalm is not on the bride, but on the groom. Isn't that fair to say? Now, you've all probably attended to a wedding or two, right? Everybody's, you've been to a wedding? Raise your hand if you've been to a wedding. Pretty much everybody, right? And you're like, well, just my own, right? But you've been to one, that's the point. And what is the American tradition when the wedding begins? The groom is typically already standing up front, right? And the note of the organ hits, and everyone stands up, isn't that right? And they physically turn their bodies towards the back door, don't they? And they watch the bride as she walks down the aisle all the way to the front, turning their bodies to follow her. And in our culture, we could even say that the wedding is mostly for and about the bride. Is that fair to say, (laughs) right? Like, she's the one who's been picturing it her whole life and and all that, and she has a special dress on, and the groom, what? I mean, he just, he wears what every other groom in the history of American grooms has worn, 
right? The wife has a special dress, and, and, and he's sometimes told, right, the, the groom, that this, just acquiesce right, to the bride's wishes because it's really not about you, homie, right? Like, we tell him that. But what our psalmist does, do you see, he flips that all on its head. <coughs> he puts the focus almost entirely on the groom, if you go to a wedding, as it ends and you're leaving, you may talk with other guests about how beautiful the bride looked, right? And, and, and how excellent her dress was and all that. Not the psalmist. He wants to talk about the beauty of the groom. The psalmist, he hears the note on the organ and he doesn't turn to look back. Because his focus is utterly on the majesty of the groom. He is infatuated with the groom, who also happens to be the king. And he wants us, us, who are reading this, to see his majesty too. Don't you, I mean, just reading this psalm, don't you get that feeling? You just look at verse 1, and the psalmist is basically saying that I'm bursting at the seams. He like, he can't contain himself. As, as he's writing as fast as his thoughts come because he's overwhelmed with the glory of the groom. And he wants the groom to know it too because this whole song is meant to be sung to him and received by him. And I wonder if you feel the same sort of stirring, the same sort of heart overflow, the same sort of overwhelming affection for Jesus. Does he get your heart pumping? Does, does dwelling on his beauty and his majesty and his goodness and his might leave you wanting to sing unto him and for him and about him and tell others his glory? Is he the center of your affections and motivation? Is he everything to you? Is he your chief desire? You know, as I was thinking about this, it brought to mind a scene in the Harry Potter book and the movie, The Philosopher's Stone. And there's a scene where the main character, Harry, he finds himself in a room that has a mirror in it. And when he looks into the mirror, he sees his parents. And his parents had died when he was a baby. Right? And so they're surrounding him and they're smiling with him. And so he runs and he goes and tells his best friend Ron about what he saw. And he brings Ron back to the mirror thinking that if Ron looks in the mirror, he'll see his parents too. Instead, what Ron sees is himself as like a, the captain of the sports team and he's holding the championship cup and he's the most valuable player and he's standing alone and his siblings are like off in the distance, jealous of him because he's clearly better than them. Well, Harry doesn't understand what the mirror is about until later his mentor explains that the mirror is called Erised, which since it's a kid's book, it's not very subtle. It's desire spelled backwards. And he says the mirror shows the deepest desires of the person's heart who's looking into the mirror. And I wonder, if you looked into a mirror like that, what would you see? What would be revealed, I wonder, as your chief desire? Now, the hope is that, the hope that the Bible is trying to communicate is that you would see what in the mirror? 
you'd see Jesus. That he would be the chief object of your affection. That he would be your greatest desire, and it would be that he that gets your heart pumping more than anything else in the whole world. Is he that for you, I wonder? Michael Reeves, he wrote this book called Rejoicing in Christ, which is incredible, and you should go buy it. He says that it seems that even for Christians, overlooking Jesus is easier than falling off a log. He says there are things that we wouldn't even have if it wasn't for Jesus that we actually allow to edge Jesus aside. He says (coughs) we naturally gravitate, it seems, towards anything but Jesus, whether it's the Christian worldview, grace, the Bible, or the gospel, as if they were things in themselves that could save us. Even the cross can get abstracted from Jesus as if the wood had some power of its own. He says other things, wonderful things, vital concepts, beautiful discoveries, so easily edged Jesus aside. Precious theological concepts meant to describe him and his work get treated as things in their own right. He becomes just another brick in the wall. But the center, he says, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity, it's not an idea. It's not a system or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It's Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who must be the center and the cornerstone and the champion, the all in all of everything about us as individuals and the church. Would you agree with that? Would you? I can start over. Look, okay, just consider his beauty in this psalm. Okay, that's all I want you to get today. <laughs> Behold the beauty of this glorious Christ. The psalmist says, look at it says, fairer than the sons of men, or he is the most handsome of all men. He says, the beauty of the king surpasses all other men who exist, who have existed, or will exist. Now, you might be thinking, as I thought when I first read this psalm, of Isaiah 53, where it foretells about the Messiah too, right, and his work, and it says that the scourged Messiah had no beauty that we should desire him. You remember that? Like his, his appearance was physically unimpressive. So how can it be that Jesus is simultaneously physically not impressive and the most beautiful of all men who have ever lived. Now, I want you to notice the answer is what makes him beautiful in this psalm? He's beautiful here because of his character. Do you see that? You are fairer than the sons of men. Why? Because grace is poured on your lips. Because God has blessed you forever and ever. Because you ride on your chariots of salvation. Because you have righteousness and truth and meekness. Do you see? In Michael Reeves, again, he's he's talking about this psalm. And he says that Jesus is the spotless epitome of beauty. Yet for his bride, the beautiful one would be lifted up and there disfigured. Which is precisely the context of Isaiah 53's comment on his appearance. Reeves says... It is because of his love for his bride that he takes on her sickness. He takes on her ugliness. 
so that she might take on his loveliness. It is in that very moment, he says, when Jesus is made most physically appalling that he becomes most dear to us. Richard Sibbs said, Christ was never more lovely to his church than when he was deformed for his church. The beauty of the king is tied to who he is and what he does, his character and his actions on behalf of his bride. Grace is poured upon his lips, he says. Grace flows from his mouth like a rushing waterfall. He speaks like no one has ever spoken. Is that not what we see about Jesus in the Gospels? Over and over again, right? Like, for example, you remember when the Pharisees sent men to go arrest Jesus in John 7, the men, they come back empty-handed, and the Pharisees are like, where is he? <laughs> Why didn't you arrest him? And the guys, well, you know what they said? Because no one has ever spoken like this man. Or, or when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, how did people react? Do you know what Matthew 7 says? They were astonished because he spoke as one who had authority and not like their religious leaders. The king is also Do you see him as a mighty warrior who leads a splendid army? You make it think, you know what I thought of was how the president of the United States is not only the head of state, but he's also what? Commander and chief of the armed forces. So he simultaneously leads the country's government, and he's the commander of the military. In fact, you guys have been in the military. You know when you took the oath of enlistment, you had to say when you joined the military, you must pledge that you will obey the orders of the president. And this king is both a ruler and a commander of the mighty military. But, you know, there's a big difference here between the POTUS and this king in terms of their military rule. The king in Psalm 45 doesn't command the army from a sweet, cushy office in a well-guarded mansion in Washington, D.C. You know why? Because the king is himself riding with the army. In fact, he's the one on the front line leading the charge, charge this king. The king has a sword strapped to his thigh. He's a mighty warrior. He rides on a horse of salvation. He flings arrows that always hit their mark. But what does he ride for? What does he fight for? You know, in the history of military battles, you know this, we could say that some wars and battles have been ill-conceived. Do you think that's fair to say? (laughs) And had some suspect motives. Not all wars that humans have fought have been for a good cause or pure aims. That's fair to say, right? This king, though, what's he ride for? He rides for truth and meekness and righteousness. His motives are utterly pure. And there is no question about victory He wins every time. But here's another thing about this king. The way he defeats his enemies is through unexpected ways. His initial victory is not with a literal sword and arrows, you understand. You know this, I hope. When Jesus came, there were all kinds of expectations of what the Messiah would be and do, right? They built up for hundreds of years this expectation of what the Messiah would look like. Jesus was not at all what they were expecting. He was from a town that was notoriously bad. He was virtually homeless. His followers were a bunch of nobodies. And the expectation was always that the Messiah would be a glorious military general. And he would restore Israel through military might. 
a dying Messiah made no sense to them, even though the Old Testament predicted such things, right? You think of a couple examples. When Jesus told his disciples he must suffer and die, you know what Peter said? You remember? May it never be! And Jesus rebuked them, called him Satan, right? Because he didn't understand what must take place. Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in on a donkey, and what's the crowd doing? They're cheering for him, right? Save us now! Were they crying for salvation from what? From the oppressive rule of Rome. Surely the Messiah would ride in and go stab Caesar through the heart, vanquish the Roman military, and set Israel to its rightful place. But then what happened? What did the Messiah do? (coughs) He allowed himself to be killed by those oppressors. Even the fellas on the road to Emmaus, right? They didn't get it. Jesus walked up to them. Do you remember? He walks up to them, and he's like, what's going on? And they're like, there was a great teacher, and we put all our hopes in him. But he got killed instead. And Jesus rebuked them in a sense because they missed that victory was predicted through the Messiah by his death and by his shedding of blood, not through military might. And he showed them from scriptures, and then their eyes were opened, and it says their hearts burned within them. The king in Psalm 45 will win in ways one would not expect. Jesus wins by bearing the sin of fallen man and being executed, only to be resurrected three days later. That's how this king of Psalm 45 brings victory in meekness and righteousness and himself embodies truth. Israel misidentified. They missed in part because they didn't know who their true enemies were. They located their enemies in people and governments and systems, but Jesus knew who the true enemies are. Our king defeats enemies that we might not even have regarded as enemies. Israel thought that their greatest enemy was Rome or whoever happened to be the oppressing force uh, over them at the time. And we might think our enemy is culture or political opponents or foreign threats or whatever. But what is our greatest enemy truly? Did this bridegroom king come to give us victory over culture or over low self-esteem or over government enemies of the country we happen to live in? Is that why he came? Jesus showed us that our greatest enemy is not outside of ourselves. Our greatest enemy is sin, which permeates our hearts and souls, our minds, Our enemy is death, which is the consequence of that sin. Our enemy is Satan, who tries to hold people captive through sin and temptation. And Jesus won the victory over them all through unexpected means. Through his substitutionary death and bodily resurrection and ascension to the throne of the universe, his arrows have indeed found their mark. And he he hands victories to those who could not win it for themselves, namely us. We must realize that our greatest enemy, we got to get this, is not out there. It's in here. 
inside our hearts. And we cannot overcome it by sheer grit and determination, nor by self-will or self-help projects. I mean, we wouldn't even know that sin was our enemy if it wasn't for the Spirit coming to us and revealing it to us. We couldn't discover it on our own. You know, I, I was thinking of a biblical example of this, where David's friend and prophet Nathan came to see him. Everybody knows the story. After David had been with Bathsheba, and he sent Uriah to his death. And Nathan came, and he's like, I want to tell you a story, right? <coughs> and he's like, this, this is a story I want to tell you. There are two men. One's rich, one's poor. The rich man had everything he could ever want, right? Including fields full of flocks. And the poor man had nothing except one lamb. And that lamb, it was like a child. It like slept in the house. It ate at the dinner table with them. It grew up with the kids. And the rich man decided, I don't want to kill one of my own flock. So he took the poor man's lamb and he slaughtered it for a party. And Nathan just stopped talking. And David hears this story and he like flies into a rage. You remember? He wants to know who could be so cruel. It's like David never heard of a man so mean and terrible. That rich man in the story was the worst guy David had ever heard about. <laughs> and David's like, I want to go kill him. You Remember what Nathan, Nathan said? He pointed his old prophet finger right in David's face. And what do you say? That man is you. We could be like that. We could think the worst things of the world, the worst spoilers of our happiness, the greatest enemies in life are somehow out there when really they're inside our hearts. We are the men and women. The enemy is within, and this king plans to conquer our enemy for us through unlikely means of his gruesome death and victorious resurrection and ascension, and the Spirit shows us these things. Else, we will continue to misidentify our greatest source of pain and alienation from God. We are, as C.S. Lewis said, not simply fallen men who are imperfect creatures that just need improvement. We are rebels who must lay down our arms. And Jesus is the one who conquers to give us something better. Do you know what that is? Himself. And then in verse 6, we have the psalmist addressing the king as God, which tells us the things that this king does cannot be accomplished by mere men. So even if, let's say, the psalmist originally had a Davidic king in mind, uh, he knows that whatever victory he wins, who, who should get the credit? God, right? That's where the victory truly comes from. This king, he says, has a scepter of uprightness. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness, and thus is anointed by God with the oil of joy. I want you to think about that word, the phrase oil of joy. Put it in your pocket for a minute. The anointing oil of joy consists of, he tells us, right? Myrrh and aloes and cassia, which is like cinnamon. Now, there's a ton of interesting stuff I want you to see real quick in verses 6 through 8, okay? I need you to track with me. Consider this language of oil of joy, okay? What's fascinating about this, picture of joy and a wedding, which is, one, is, is not a wedding one of the most joyous occasions that you could experience in life, right? It's interesting where the psalmist where the Spirit put this psalm in the Psalter on the whole, okay? So if you have a, co a hard copy of God's Word and you just 
just flip and look at the headings of the psalms that come before this one. Or just, just gaze through, glance through and see the words that are used in the psalms that are right before this in 42 and 43 and 41 and 44, right? They, they t- they're bleak, aren't they? They talk of trouble and exile and feelings of abandonment and pain and seeming victory. Why do the wicked seem to win all the time? But then you come to Psalm 45, and what does it say? It takes us from the valley of despair and exile and takes us to triumph and promises that one day the true king will rise and he will vanquish evil and he'll take the oppressed and he'll put them at a place of prominence. So while our greatest enemy is sin and Satan and death, the king truly will vanquish the oppressive powers of earth that hold the marginalized down because Satan is behind such systems and structures. Jesus is the king, in other words, that people have longed for. He is even the king that kings like David have longed for. He's the answer to all the cries of the previous Psalms. Don't you see? Don't we all have this sort of longing for a perfect ruler? Don't we have that? Isn't that like innate in our hearts? The, you know what the problem is though, right? We're always looking to men of earth or to ourselves or to our stuff to fill the void of ruler and we end up disappointed every time. We put the weight and hopes of Messiah in earthly politicians and even worship them, but they never truly meet our expectations, do they? And understand, the urge for a ruler isn't wrong. Where we place our hopes can very much be unless they are located in Jesus. Tim Keller says this. He says, we have, we have to have democracy because human beings are so sinful that none of us really are fit to rule. But we need a king, he says. We're built for a king. The reason for the old myths, the reason for the new myths, the reason we adore kings and create them is because there is a memory trace in the human race, in you and me, of a great king, an ancient king, one who did rule with such power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory. So his power and wisdom and compassion and glory were like the sun shining in full strength. We know we are built to submit to that king to stand before and adore and serve and know that king. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says there is a king above the kings. There is a king behind the kings. There's a king beneath all of those legends. Even the greatest kings are just dim reflections of the memory trace in us. There's only one who could rescue the downcast psalmist leading up to the psalm, and that is what is being communicated here. There is indeed such a king, and he is coming. That's what the psalmist is saying. Now, what else is interesting in this? I thought this was great when I figured this one out. This phrase, oil of joy. I want you to follow me here, okay? (coughs) It's interesting because Isaiah uses that language, the oil of gladness, in Isaiah 61. Listen to what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, 
the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, what's even more interesting about this is you jump to Luke 4, and Jesus, after he defeats Satan in the wilderness by using the sword of scriptures, he goes to Nazareth, he goes into a synagogue, he grabs a scroll, and in front of everybody's hearing, he reads a portion of scripture. You know what he read? Isaiah 61, and he sits down and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he says, that passage is talking about me. And it says, in Luke, look at this, people marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, which sounds a lot like Psalm 45 too, doesn't it? You know, something else that's interesting is the ingredients of verse 8 are among the ingredients in the anointing oil for the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 30, Jesus is the fulfillment of even that. But then, in verse 9, we're introduced to the bride, right? And the attention somewhat turns to her. But I want you to notice the psalmist mostly exhorts the bride, right? rather than simply showering her with compliments like he did for the groom king. Further, we have to see that what commends the bride is not the bride herself. What commends the bride, what makes her beautiful, is not her separate qualities, but her connection to the king. It is the king that makes the bride beautiful. Now, I was trying my best to find an illustration for this, But I really couldn't come up with anything because if you try to think of like a story in movies or fables or literatures of a bride that's unworthy of the king and it's the king who makes her worthy, you struggle to come up with anything. Because I mean, you think of even like Cinderella, which is the first one that came to my mind, right? It's not as if Cinderella had nothing at all to commend herself to the king, right? I mean, she may have been poor and had the worst stepmom ever. Right? And horrible step siblings and scrubbed the floor all the live long day. And she was dressed in rags and stuff. But the fact remains that she was physically beautiful, right? And she was kind and she was intelligent. She had qualities that would commend her to the king, even if she was poor. But the bride in Psalm 45 and the bride that is you and that is me and that is the church, we have nothing of note to commend ourselves to the king. We have no personal attributes or presence of holiness on our own that make us particularly attractive to the king. We have nothing we could give him that isn't already his. But what makes us beautiful is the actions of the king on our behalf and his choosing us to be his bride. Like Reeve said that I read earlier, out of sheer boundless love for his bride, love that was found within himself, Jesus took her sickness upon himself with all the consequences of her sin. He took her ugliness that she might have his loveliness. I love that so much. With nothing to commend ourselves to Jesus, he came and sought us. The king came to the dregs and found a dirty bride who he scooped up and cleaned up himself. Is that not what Ephesians 5 tells us? 
Jesus saw us, and he pitied us, and he died for his church and thus brings her in to clean her up, and his actions, his imputing his holiness to her, that's what makes her lovely. You ever have one of your kids or grandkids come inside from playing outside and they're just absolutely filthy? Have you ever had that? Just disgusting, right? Just in the mud, nasty, just covered in muck and dirt. And you point to the bathroom and you say, what? Go clean yourself up before you track more dirt inside. You've said this, I bet, haven't you? Well, Jesus doesn't bother to point to the bathroom. He doesn't chastise us for being dirty. Even though we are dirty through our own volition, but he just takes us and cleans us up himself. He gets us ready for the wedding. And that's the space we're in right now. We're betrothed to our beloved, and he's getting us ready for the day of the ceremony. You know, our view of marriage, we're 2,500 years separated from when this psalm was written. Our context is very different from what the author would have known, right? We get engaged before we get married, but that isn't legally binding, right? We could call off the wedding whenever we want when you're engaged. In fact, isn't it better, we say, to call off the wedding rather than go through it if we don't think it'll work out? Well, that's not how the ancients viewed marriage and engagement. Rather, they'd be betrothed before the wedding, and the groom would get the dowry ready to pay the bride's family. But during the betrothal, they were legally bound to one another. That's why in the birth narrative of Jesus, right, Joseph is said to want to divorce Mary quietly because even though they hadn't had the ceremony yet, they essentially were married. That's what betrothal was. In a similar way, we are betrothed to Jesus. We are legally bound to him, and we're getting ready for the wedding banquet. We are waiting for the marriage, and he helps us to get prepared. And what do we do in response to being sought and bought and the promise of cleansing? What do we do in response to this incredible groom and his work and initiative for us? Verse 10 tells us, what the bri- he exhorts the bride, forget your past. Psalmist tells the bride to forget your people. Forget your father's house. Leave that all behind. In other words, now that you're marrying the groom king, you have new allegiances, new loyalties, new desires, new priorities. His priorities are now your priorities. His wishes, they're now your wishes. His loves, they're now your loves. His love for righteousness is your love for righteousness. His hatred of wickedness is now your hatred of wickedness. (coughs) The king clothes us as his bride with his garments, that's what it says, garments of gold, and we're led to him in rejoicing as we enter the king's palace. This, friends, is how Jesus sees you and the church. He seeks, he finds, he purchases, he cleanses, he exhorts to thus forget your former loyalties and desires, forsake them, and adopt what he loves and what he desires and what he commands. Verse 11, bow low to him and say, command me, my Lord. Not only because of what he's done, isn't that what we highlight all the time? Benefits that we receive from Jesus. That's not entirely bad, but what about just because he's the fairest of them all? What about that? Just simply, we get Jesus, and he's the most glorious of all. His beauty and character surpass everyone who has ever lived. Shouldn't this picture utterly transform us? Shouldn't it? Look how glorious he is. 
If you leave with nothing else today, leave with an overwhelming sense of the beauty of Jesus. That's all I want. Be utterly transformed by his splendor. And see this glorious king has actually moved heaven and earth to get to you, to the undeserving bride, and he means to clean you up so that he can present you spotless on the day of consummation at the end of the age. Does knowing that change you, I wonder? Do you consider the utter beauty of Jesus and respond with a life that lives for him? A life that forgets your formal loyalties and orients to utter devotion to your husband, Jesus the King. Does it affect your whole person and compel you to worship and serve and live for him? I heard uh, Tim Keller give this illustration several years ago. Uh, it, it stuck with me. I used it last year for Psalm 145. But I, I really think it communicates what the beauty of Jesus should do to us if we truly apprehend it. And he, what he, this, this is how he illustrated He said, imagine a woman who's inherited a, a piece of jewelry, okay? And he used the example of like a brooch. Got it from his mother, got it from her mother, who got it from her mother, and so on and so forth. And it's been around for the family for years, and nobody quite knows where it came from, and nobody quite knows what it's worth. And half the time, they don't even know where it is. And one day, the woman happens upon it in her house and says, oh yeah, that old thing... I think I'll go get it appraised. And so she takes it to the jeweler. So she goes to the jeweler, and he gets that, you know that eye thing? Loop, I think is what it's called. You know the eye thing that they use? And he looks at it. And he starts to notice the way the facets refract the light. He notices the colors. He notices texture. And bit by bit, as he's looking at it, all of a sudden, after a couple minutes of this, his eye thing pops out. And he starts to have labored breathing. And he begins to feel faint because he realizes that this is some lost, ancient, unique piece of jewelry. Uh, the craft of which was that it was made vanished from the face of the earth. Nobody even knows how to do it anymore. And this is unique in its beauty, it's priceless, and suddenly all of his faculties are engaged, right? His mind, his will, his emotion. And the reason those are all engaged is because he's realizing the value of what he has in his hand. Hey, he realized what he has in his hand is more valuable than all the jewels in his shop presently and all the jewels he's had for over 30 years. Of course, when the woman comes to understand the true value of what it, this thing is, she's also astounded and she's thunderstruck and she realizes she has not been living in accordance with the value of what she had because she didn't understand the true value of it. She wasn't living at all the way she ought to be living. Her, her entire life has changed now that she's seen the value of it. That illustration tells us how to respond when we see who Christ is. The psalmist is calling us to do exactly what the jeweler does, to see that Jesus is the most beautiful of all, to apprehend his beauty, and that will utterly transform our whole lives. It starts rationally. It starts with just thinking about him. It starts with looking at who he is and what he's done and enumerates the inventories until it dawns on you the value, the beauty of who Jesus is. <coughs> Worship is to see what God is worth and give him what he's worth in such a way that you begin to live in accordance with it. Your whole life will change if you just see how incredibly glorious Jesus is.
that's our number one concern, I'll tell you, as your pastors. We so desperately want you to see how incredible Jesus is because we believe that when you do, your whole life will change. So we put him before your eyes and before your eyes and before your eyes so you can grow more and more in love with him. We might say that what matters to us is not your happiness but your holiness because we know when you begin to see Jesus and desire him more and more and grow more holy because of him that you'll be happy because you'll finally find your happiness in the only place that can, it, it can be found in a lasting way, in Christ alone. If you're miserable, if you're anxious, if you're restless, if you're looking around trying to find things to not like, if you're grumbler, if you're antsy, if you can't seem to find fulfillment in all the things you seek, can I suggest something? You're not apprehending the beauty of Christ. That's why. Maybe you've forgotten how beautiful he is, or maybe his beauty isn't enough for you anymore. That's what I fear has happened for a lot of Christians. They've grown bored with Jesus. So they chase other things and they put their focus on lower, unsatisfying things. Just, Jesus doesn't do what that brooch did to that jeweler in that illustration to them anymore. He didn't get their heart pumping and so they grow restless. Friend, can I ask you, does Jesus' person, his character, his deeds, his beauty, does he still thrill you? Are you infatuated with him? The way a love-stricken bride or groom is infatuated with their husband or wife to be. Behold his beauty today and let it transform you from the inside out. You know, I told you the Bible starts with a wedding. Marriage language is used throughout and it ends with marriage. This is what Revelation 19 says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Do you know what happened right after that? Jesus is shown as a mighty warrior crushing his enemies and bringing salvation to his bride and his bride alone. What does hearing that do to your heart? How beautiful is Jesus to you today? Is he worth singing for? Is he worth living for? And he, when he returns, will you be at the wedding or will you be vanquished with his foes? Today is the day to think deeply about who Jesus is to you. If you haven't been, start now and do it every day. There are only, you know this, today you will make a choice and in your life you will make a choice and there are only two choices before you that you will choose today. He's either your husband and your champion or he's your conqueror. If you don't know him as husband, today is the day to behold his beauty, to see your unworthiness, but his worthiness, and to receive his offer to cleanse you. If he truly is your bridegroom, pray today for rekindled affections. Pray that you will truly apprehend his beauty and his glory 
and be thus continually changed to live for Him afresh. And give your thanks to Him with your heart, mouth, and life forever and ever, beginning anew today.